Well, friends, let's jump right into the text. It's from Mark chapter 9, and it begins like this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was, transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there he appeared before them, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they could no longer see anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Wow. I mean, what a story. I mean, that, that, that's pretty incredible. Um, but before I found the story to be incredible, I, I found the story to be outrageous. And what I meant by outrageous was I wasn't always sure if such a story like this really belonged in our holy book. I mean, it just kind of has that feel of, did this really happen like that? Now, for those of you who are, have trouble believing in these types of stories, know that I respect that. Uh, probably because I, I, for, for a, a portion of my life, I looked at these stories with a little bit of a, a side-eye type of skepticism as well. But I also, because I, I value intellectual integrity very much, and you probably do as well, and I often discover that great meaning and great truth is found after we question something. And we'll revisit this piece for a little bit, but if you're having trouble accepting the supernatural moment of the story, uh, I ask you just to hang in there with me. We're going to revisit that in, in, towards the end of the message. But we're going to talk about the transfiguration tonight, among other things. The transfiguration. What was it? I found a fancy theological definition, because I know many of you like fancy theological definitions. Here it is. Uh, the transfiguration is a revelation of the glory of the Son of God, a glory now hidden to be manifested completely and openly at the end of the age. That is a proper theological definition. And then I found um, this definition that I think works uh, from the disciples' perspective. Uh, the transfiguration, uh, which, which I think is a technical term for, uh, uh, not sure exactly, but Jesus had been raised from the dead. We'd never mention this because we'd have no idea what happened. His clothes turned white, like really, really white. A cloud, and we're pretty sure the voice of God, it was intense. Then Peter said something weird. I, I think that's an appropriate definition from the three guys who were there. I mean, what is this? I mean, look, look at this picture I, I found when, when I googled um, the, the, the transfiguration. Uh, and and these, are like, these are like famous pictures. These aren't like just the weird Google pictures. I mean, like these, these pictures are hanging in museums, okay, of the transfiguration, okay? Uh, and I want to give you a little bit of context, but I want to give you good context. So, so hang in there with me. Uh, we want to do this right. So we're going to go back three chapters, okay? Back to chapter 6. And chapter 6 talks about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And Jesus is alluding to here as, as, the, as Elijah, you know, the, the, the second kind of coming the, the, uh, of Elijah. And Herod, in chapter 6, beheads his cousin, um, John the Baptist, here. And then distraught, Jesus attempts to leave to go to pray 
later in that chapter, but people recognize him and they, are, they have so many needs and they want to just spend some time with Jesus. And the text says that he has compassion on them. So he stays and he preaches to them and he, and he, he, he heals people there as well. And this is also in Mark is the, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 there. And then in chapter 7, uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus gets into an argument with the Pharisees. And then there's also another moment where he confuses some of the disciples. And then chapter 7 ends with the healing of a deaf and mute man with spit and a little bit of Hebrew. And the Hebrew is, uh, be opened, uh, that he says to the man's ears. And then uh, they're now in the Sea of Galilee area, and there's the feeding of the 4,000. Okay, so there's 5,000, and there's the feeding of 4,000. Uh, that, that's all in chapter 8. And then Jesus encounters a blind man, and he heals him with, yes, more spit. True story. Uh, and then they head up to Philippi, uh, which is a little bit more remote. And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Brian gave a really powerful sermon. And if you missed it, um, I, I encourage you to find it online. Uh, I, I found it to be one of the most challenging messages of the fall. But in chapter 8, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you think that I am? And it's in this moment that Peter says, you are the Christ. And, and Jesus says, you're right. And then, Peter, and then Jesus starts explaining that he's going to have to suffer at the hands of his rivals, at the hands of his enemies, at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And because Peter's a good soldier, he says, this is never going to happen to you. And he's not expecting the response that Jesus is going to give him back. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. And he says, you don't have the, the concerns of God, but you just have human concerns on your minds. And then he calls the crowd to him and tells them that if they want to follow him, and be a disciple of his, they must take up their cross and truly follow him. Because to find your life, you have to give up your life. That's where true identity, that's where true mission is found. That is a lot happening in just a couple of chapters. And it's in this moment that Jesus decides to bring up these three disciples for this moment of transfiguration. I mean, what, what a stretch of text that is happening. I mean, just there's a lot, a lot, a lot happening feeding the 5,000, arguments, healings, spit for some reason, confessions of messiahship, uh, and then calling one of, your most support, one of your most loyal supporters Satan. I mean, this is strange. This is a strange set of chapters. I mean, it's almost like Jesus is saying, you haven't seen nothing yet. And, and in a world where there's no special effects, in a world where like, there's just no category for something like this, I mean, just imagine seeing Jesus being kind of like all white and glorified and then two people who have been dead for a thousand or so years appearing suddenly. I mean, that is intense. And then there's like the disciples' reaction. Um, it's good for us to be here. Because what do you say in such a moment? I have, a, I have a story that every time I hear the phrase, it is good for us to be here, I, I, can't, I can't help but laugh. Back in college, a bunch of friends uh, of mine, we decided that we were going to visit some area churches because we wanted to get a little bit beyond our bubble. We, we wanted to kind of experience different types of church traditions. And, and one church we had heard so many wonderful things about was this African-American church just a few miles down from our college. So we decided to check that out. We saw that the service time was at 10 o'clock. So we got there at 10 o'clock, not knowing that we'd be the first people there by a half an hour. Um, that was, so we, we get there. And because when you're first, you sit where? in the back row, just like a GC night. When you come in first, you sit in the back row, right? And so we get there, we're first, we're, we, we got our spot here, 
and, and eventually people start rolling in, the service starts, and it is just like a rocking service, and it's just singing and jamming for like 30 or, 30 or some minutes, and we're doing our best to keep up, and we're like, wow, what an experience. At some point, the, the pastor gets up, and he says, oh, and he says a, a number of things, so good for us to be here, praise the Lord, you know, X, Y, Z. Hey, before you take your seat, say hi to the person next to you. But before we do that, is anybody visiting here for the first time? Because we want to hear a word from you. <laughs> and so my friends all look at me like, you should say something because you're the extrovert. And I was like, oh my goodness, a word. I was going to just say my name and thanks for having us. Um, so as I'm thinking real fast and clearing my throat, <clears throat> the guy who I, who's with us, but I don't really know him very well, um, to my right, he says, he says this just like this. It is good for us to be here. <laughs> and I'm telling you, the whole room is like, <laughs> and my friends and I were like, why did you say it like that? You're a very intelligent young man. Why would you say that? And the, the, the worship pastor, the, the pastor, he's kind of, he doesn't know what to do with this moment, too. And he's like, it's good for all of us to be here. Let's keep praising the Lord. You know, and and then the music starts singing again. Everybody starts clapping. And the, the whole service goes again. And people are just coming up to us, hugging us. And they're like hugging him extra long because, you know, you got to. <laughs> it's good for us to be here. And apparently that's just what you say when you don't know what to say, Right? I'm just glad that he didn't say, hey, we want to build you some tents you know, you know, for, for you guys later, like, like Peter said. But man, I mean, that was, that, was, that was a moment. Well, when I tell you, just like Peter, he didn't know what to say either. And there's this awkward moment, too, with Moses and Elijah. Like, why of all the people in Scripture, why are Moses and Elijah present at the Transfiguration? The, the, the common answer is that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And they are the most legitimate representatives of those two Hebrew concepts, law and prophecy. So when Jesus invites them to his transfiguration party, he's saying, I'm the Messiah that has been prophesied about and the one who is fulfilling the law. Okay? And as it says in Mark, a cloud came over them, and a voice then says, this is Jesus who I love. Listen to him. Which I think is like one of the most under, the biggest understatements I've heard. Because if you saw this, I wouldn't need anybody to say, listen to this person. Like I would just, it would just be automatic from then on. But, but that's, that's, that's apparently exactly what happened. I mean, imagine that. What a holy moment. I mean, you imagine being Peter, James, and John. What a holy moment. And it's so easy to pick on Peter for saying what he said and to offering to, to build these, these three tents. But why would he say that? Well, what, what he probably meant was he, he was trying to honor the moment. In his mind, he, he, was, he was trying to be a good host. Here, Elijah and Moses have appeared, and if they're staying... We'll bring others up here too so that they can see. He's probably also thinking what, what I would think. No one is going to believe us. No one is going to believe this. And so, so they better come up to this mountain and, and see for themselves. And this mountain was Mount Hebron. 
And I, and I wanted to, I should have mentioned a little bit of context on Mount Hebron. Mount Hebron is like Abraham's favorite place on earth. Abraham loved this mountain. This is a special mountain in, in, in the Old Testament. In fact, that's, that's where he brought his wife in her old age, and that's where Sarah dies. And it's such a significant mountain that David, King David, decides he's going to build his official residence there. Even though he's king of Jerusalem, and he, and, 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 or the, even though the capital is in Jerusalem, this is his favorite place in Israel. And, and, and there's, there's, other, there's other moments like in Joshua and the conquest and, and, and other things like that. But this is a special mountain that Jesus brings these, these three to. But imagine if I was Peter on this special mountain, I'd be, I'd be thinking to myself, I wish I could bring other people to experience this for themselves. I wish I could even bring the people who Jesus is arguing with, the religious leaders and the Romans, because then they would get it. Then they wouldn't hate us and resent us so much. Then Jesus wouldn't have to like, you know, go through this thing of dying or being arrested type of a thing. I wish other people could see this. He's confused. And I'm sure if you could take Peter aside, he would probably sarcastically say anything, say back to you, I have no idea what's going on. Do you know what's going on? And you would probably say, no, I have no idea either. You'd probably also say, that's why, that's why I wouldn't say anything too, right? Like, like in an awkward situation, you, sometimes you don't say anything, right? But let's lean into this moment of confusion. This is the gospel of Mark. And if you, if you know, like your, if you've memorized your 12 disciples, you know that Mark isn't one of them, right? Who is Mark? Mark is Peter's protege. And the gospel of Mark is often understood as the account of Peter. Okay, so, so, so picture Peter narrating a lot of this to his disciple, his protege, Mark. And we get a lot of strange and wonderful things that Peter says here in Mark. Because it's very, very likely, again, that Peter's dictating all of this. And Peter's telling Mark all this post-resurrection, post-Pentecost context, because so much of this is Peter in retrospect. And so much of this is Peter saying, I didn't understand what was going on. I was missing it. And now as an apostle of Jesus, I finally get it. But in the Gospel of Mark, don't you miss it? So that's what he's trying to do in the Gospel of Mark. I was missing it. Don't you miss it? And one of the things that Peter is confused about is, is why does Jesus have to suffer? And I imagine at this part in Mark 9, he might also have a little bit of a broken heart. And I think that's part of why Jesus brings him up to the mountain. I mean, Peter's probably thinking none of this is making sense. If Jesus is so wonderful and so kind, why? Why are people against him? None of this is predictable. We're disappointed. We don't know exactly where this is headed. And I just got called Satan. I mean, that's a, there's not many insults worse than, you know, being said by Jesus than being called Satan. I mean, it'd be hard to think of one. And Satan, in, in the actual context, doesn't just mean the evil one. In the context, it means the accuser the deceiver. And Jesus is saying, you are trying to to give me a different reality than the reality that I must actually fulfill. And and, and that's actually what he's saying with with that Satan line. I mean, have you ever felt brokenhearted and confused and frustrated, even in the midst of a spiritual experience like that? I mean, how many times have you come to church over the years and thought, I don't even know what's going on here sometimes? Sometimes. How many times have we laid in bed with, with not being able to sleep, kind of praying in, in and out of the moment, God, I, I don't even know what you're trying to show me anymore. Maybe you, we've, we've driven in our cars and just kind of 
looked out the windows and just thought to ourselves, God, I need some clarity. I need some perspective. We don't have compartments for this. In fact, we don't have effective categories for our encounters with the divine. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus blows up our compartments. He blows up the categories. We don't actually have a way of fitting him into all the rational, logical boxes that we have been given in life. Jesus blows all of those things up. And to that we say good. Good. It's good that we can't predict God. It's good that we can't solve God. If God was controllable or predictable or solvable, he wouldn't be much of a God. Earlier I alluded to this idea that perhaps, we, you know, is this story really true? I mean, all these miraculous accounts of Scripture, you know, you know we, we wrestle with them. And like with all these accounts of Scripture, I, I, in the conclusion, I find myself, you know, after, after I kind of do the math and after I kind of like, you know, punch the air a few times and really read it and really try to understand it, I find myself having this conclusion. What is the point of believing in a supernatural God who has, been risen from the, who has been raised from the dead if we're not going to believe these incredible moments of Scripture? I mean, if we're, going, if we're going to go through the trouble of believing that Jesus was raised from the dead, let's also believe in the things that he has done in Scripture. I, I, I believe that very, very much, that, that Jesus is greater than the brokenness, Jesus is greater than the confusion, in, in the resurrection story, Jesus demonstrates that he's greater than death, he's greater than evil, he's greater than the power of sin. Jesus is greater than all of it. And, and because of this, because of that greatness, I am more than willing to concede these miraculous stories that are found in Scripture. Now, maybe one of the elephants in the room when we talk about that is, what, what about some of these strange stories that we hear our brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes sharing? Do we believe those too? I find myself hearing a lot of stories as a pastor, and some stories I believe are true, and some stories I'm not so sure. But to do the math and to kind of, you know, go through the whole process, I generally walk away thinking what I do believe, what I do know, is that God is capable of doing extraordinary things. And that's really the point of so many of the miracles, that with nothing with God, nothing is impossible. That's the point of the miracles. With God, nothing is impossible. God can do anything. Have you ever had in your own moment, in your own life, a moment where you said to yourself, I could never tell anybody about this because nobody would believe me? I know I have. I have, I have stories that I, I would never share in a sermon illustration because I just know people would just be like, no, that didn't happen. Oh, here's another preacher story. Oh, man, they always got to exaggerate these things to make people listen. I, I, I have stories, I don't even know how to describe them. And only a few, by the way, like just, 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 just a couple. I, I, I don't know what to do with them. But I believe that God was very much involved. And you probably have similar things. I find it also very interesting that, that Jesus says as they're leaving the mountain, don't tell anybody about this until the resurrection don't tell anybody about this. I mean, you would think if you and I were Jesus, you would, you would think that Jesus would say, tell everybody about this. I mean, try to describe what you just experienced. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus is reserving this experience for these three people. 
probably to encourage them. And maybe they don't have a category for it. Maybe they're amazed. Maybe they're a little skeptical. Maybe they're mesmerized. Maybe they're confused. But it is for them. There are moments that are just for us as well. I mean, there's probably a moment that, I don't know if you've ever had, like in, in, in your worship, where, where something has, has been said in a sermon or a lyric in a song that has just blessed you so much. And you've just, you just, your heart is just filled. And you leave the service and the person next to you says, oh man, what, that, that, that was, they were not on their A game today. And you're like, oh my goodness, I, I actually heard from God. I, I actually was blessed. And maybe you've had the opposite experience where like you have left the service and, and thought to yourself, oh man, I should have stayed home today. And the person next to you was like, oh my goodness, wasn't that an amazing service? Oh, I just felt God commune with me. And you're like, oh my goodness, like I, I totally didn't, yeah, yeah, that, that's great. Woo, another good week, right? And, and I think that's part of the rhythm of worship that we have. We have an opportunity in our weekly worship, or since not everybody attends weekly, I'll say in our frequent worship. Just, 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 a, little, just a little sarcasm there, that's okay. <laughs> There was a study of, of, a, of, a, of one of the churches that I just read about, like a really good church, uh, where they, where they uh, I, just, I heard this, I didn't read this, uh, where they actually um, did like a survey and they found that their, their membership, like they're, they're faithful, like people who give, people who serve are coming about twice a month, sometimes less. Um, our, our church patterns are, are, are changing and, and you probably feel that yourself to some degree. And we want to we encourage all of us, not, not, not just you, but, but all of us, like the American church, to, to think about that. But in, in our times of frequent worship, we have an opportunity to hear what God is telling us. There's going to be good weeks, there's going to be bad weeks, but there's going to be weeks that God is clearly trying to tell you something. And that is what, what's so incredible about worship, is that you get to gather in a room of people, and you get to sing these praises about how great God is. And one of my favorite parts of worship is watching other people sing about how great God is. Because it makes my experience not just unique to me. I'm blessed to know that other people are also encouraged and blessed by God. They have a story too. And there's something that happens in this moment of, of confession that we have. And one of the things that happens is that our heart becomes open. And when our hearts are open, that is when our hearts are most receptive to receive from God. I'd like to submit to you that sometimes when we don't get much out of a worship service, yeah, it could have been the preacher, yeah, it could have been the music, yeah, it could have been the technology, but it could have been that our hearts were not open. It could have been a number of things. I'd like to encourage you as GC at Nighters to know that you are not just an attendee here. You are part of a community. You are not a number. You are not a seat. You are part of a community. And when we are singing, when we are worshiping, we are doing quite a lot. So don't hold back from us. Keep doing this wonderful, authentic, good thing that, that we do week in and week out. And for those of you, I should mention, for those of you who have not, at this point in your life, decided to identify uh, as a Christian, but you, but you come and you check it out, we are grateful that you're here. Please don't ever feel pressure. Don't ever feel that we're trying to uh, you know, to, to coerce you or to manipulate you in any way. We, we're, we're grateful that you're here. Uh, take your time. Uh, may you find what you are looking for. That, that, that we, we say that as, as sincerely as we possibly can.
But to all of us, we, we would ask ourselves tonight, what is God trying to fill our heart with? What does this mean for us? I mean, consider your own mountaintop experiences that you've had over the years. I mean, maybe you've gone to a, a family gathering. Maybe you've gone to a wedding. Sometimes going to a wedding is a, is a mountaintop experience. It's a time where you get to celebrate with a couple. All your family gets together. There's a lot of stories that are being shared, memories and laughs and all sorts of wonderful things. And you, and you often drive away thinking, like, after the thing is all over, man, that was a great time. Why can't our family always be fun like that type of a thing? Oh, that was a great great mountaintop experience type of a thing. Recently, I, I spoke on a, at a men's retreat, and I had such an incredible time watching them kind of go through this, 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 this incredible mountaintop experience that they had experienced. And I was just blessed to be a part of that. And I felt good from it. Like, I felt a little bit of a, a high from it as well. For me, when I think of the, the more memorable mountaintop experiences of my life, I, I go back to my teenage years. And right before my senior year of high school, I went to uh, it was called Teen Camp up at Camp Berea. Have you ever been to Camp Berea? A few, a few, a few of you here. All right. So I was living in Pennsylvania, but my friend Bassam, who grew up here in the New England area, uh, he he would always invite me to Teen Camp, and I, and, I, and I would go with him every year, and 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 we would do this every year together. And so my friend Bassam is actually turning forty today. Um, and so I, I just felt like all these things kind of converging. Um, he's not in the room, but he's going to listen to this by podcast. True story. Could, could we just say, could we, on, on the count of three, could, could we say happy 40th birthday, Bassam? Ready? One, two, three. Happy 40th birthday, Bassam. Love you, buddy. But we would do these camp things. You can take the picture down. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> It's actually a little distracting. <laughs> um, that, that picture was taken last night at, at, his, at his birthday party. But he was, uh, if, you've, if you've been to camp as a teenager, you, you know how this goes. You, you, you go through this incredible experience. There's always a campfire at the end where you throw something in the fire. You, you, you tell a story. There's a lot of crying. Uh, there's, there's a lot of celebration. And like, you leave knowing for sure that your life is different. And, and for, for, for a few weeks, it is. And then kind of like the reality kind of hits you a little bit and you start wondering to yourself, man, I wish I could go back to that. And I had been through that a few times and it was the second last night of camp and they had they'd encouraged us to take a walk in, at night by ourselves and not talk to anybody for one hour. And I was, right before my senior year of high school, so I was a bit cynical. And to be honest with you, my cynicism was about to take over. And I was pretty sure that once I graduated high school and went away to college, that I was no longer going to identify myself as a Christian. I just, I just didn't really find a lot of intellectual integrity in Christianity at the time. I found the stories to be a little unbelievable. And if I could also just be honest, and it could just be part also just of where I was in my, in my immaturity, I didn't like a lot of the Christians that I was around either. And so like all these things, I didn't really find community there. All these things were kind of converging together. And I found myself on this tennis court, looking up at the sky, saying this to God. I don't want to do the same thing that I keep doing that I'm going to promise to be a better Christian, promise to be a good person, promise this, promise that, and for a few weeks it lasts, and then it doesn't. I just don't want, I just, I'm just not going to do that. And so I'm probably not going to leave as a changed person. But the truth is, and after like, you know, like, like an hour of this, like I was, and it, wasn't, it was like, it was an, it was, I would call it an odd prayer. I do want to know if God is real. I do want, I do want to know if Jesus is real. 
like a, I, I, that, that was it. And God, if you would show that to me, I'd be grateful. And so I left with like no commitment of reading my Bible. I, I left with, with throwing nothing in the fire. I kind of just smiled my way through the next day's, you know, the campfire service. And I went home. And, but that, that prayer just kind of stuck with me. And I started just casually reading the Bible because I wanted to know the faith that I was abandoning later. I'll read this like really seriously for, for, for really once so I know what I'm leaving behind. And it was through that year that I just started resonating with the power of Scripture. And I don't know if it was a pressure that was off. I, 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 don't, I don't know what, exactly what happened, but I know that God met me in this tension of the mountaintop experience and in the confusion and I think in the brutal honesty of the moment. And I think that's where God meets us when we are most honest, when we are most alert to what God is trying to show us. That, that, that is what honesty allows our souls to experience, that alertness, that, that recept, that, 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 to be receptive to what the Lord is trying to say to us. I believe that God is with us now. I believe that God is with you now. We would be wise to notice that when the disciples and, and Jesus come, come down from the mountain, they, they don't have an easy life that awaits them at the bottom of the mountain. You friends, as you leave tonight, there's going to be a whole to-do list that is going to be waiting for you as soon as the service is over. You're going to be ambushed by all sorts of things, voicemails and texts and bills and schedules and all the normal burdens and anxieties of life. Mountaintop experiences do not remove that reality. Instead, when we come down from the mountain, Jesus can give us perspective. He can give us a vision for what is ahead. And sometimes these God-given experiences inform us of how to step back into reality, how to step back into Monday and Tuesday and so on. But these moments, they shape our identity, they bring us clarity, and they also bring us mission. So as it turns out, this is the last week of this series called The Divine Invitation. And we've been encouraging all of us to, um, uh, we, ha we have this circle here. We've been encouraging all of us to, to consider our next step. And all throughout the series, there's been a, this, this idea of worshiping regularly, belonging to a group, serving together, giving, and in the light blue field says go. And how, how can we go on mission? What is your next step? And what we want to encourage all of us to see that this wheel keeps turning, that we have to keep worshiping, we have to keep belonging, we have to keep serving, we have to keep giving, we have to keep going. Throughout this series, we've been saying, what does it look like to, to, to be with Jesus and also to, to go with Jesus? What does it look like to, to gather for the sake of community, for the sake of worship, but then also then to be sent out into the world? What does it look like here living in, in these tense 2017 complicated, painful days? What does it look like to be the salt and light into the world? And yet, what does it look like to come back into this community for, a sake, for the sake of refuge, for the sake of perspective, for the sake of wisdom and strength? What does all that look like? And so, friends, we ask you to open your hearts to what God is trying to show you tonight. Whether you feel that you're on the mountain, whether you feel like that you're in the valley, Know that the Lord is with you in these moments and that he is indeed trying to not just show you something, 
but to empower you with his glory and with the goodness of his Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Our Lord God, we do come to you grateful and confident that you are indeed powerful, that you are indeed strong. And we know, Lord, that you are capable of so many things. And we pray, Lord, that that you would give us this hope, give us this this unconditional love that that you could reflect through us to this world that, that really is hungry for meaning and truth. We pray, Lord, that you would work through us in those ways, but may we experience it too because we are hungry to experience the righteousness and the goodness that comes from you. Perhaps we feel like Peter, a little unsure of of what is going on. So Lord, we open our hearts a little little wider. We ask, Lord, in these quiet moments and and also the quiet moments that that will fill our hearts for, for the days to come, we invite you to speak to us, Lord. Show us your goodness. Show us your hope. Show us your love. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.